and welcome. You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Hello, and welcome to Diversity Matters podcast show that explores different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our society and in the workplace. Stephen Lawrence, a young black man from Woolwich, southeast London, who dreamed of becoming an architect, was stabbed and murdered in an unprovoked racist attack by a gang of white youths whilst waiting for a bus on the evening of the 22nd of April, 1993. The police investigation was marred by incompetence, corruption and institutional racism and the suspects were not arrested or charged for years. In 1999, a public inquiry led by Sir William McPherson concluded that the police were guilty of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. In 2012, only two of the six killers were finally convicted of murder and jailed for life. His family's tireless campaign for justice exposed the failures of the police and the legal system, which led to cultural shifts and changes in attitudes towards racism within British society, the law, and the Met Police. This fight and their story are still as impactful and important today as it was in the 90s, whilst the fight for justice and change continues. My guest on Diversity Matters is Stuart Lawrence, younger brother of Stephen a teacher, author, and consultant with a single purpose to give young people and adults alike the mindset and skills to achieve their potential, irrespective of background, and in turn become the voices that change society. Stu is using one of the darkest times for their family to make a difference. Over the last few years, Stuart has spent his time working with schools, presenting assemblies, working with youth groups, youth centres, and sharing his story, experiences, and presented messages of hope and tolerance. His main goal is to equip young people with the mindset to believe and achieve what they want in life, no matter the challenges many of them will unfortunately face due to social and economic disadvantages, ethnicity, religion, childhood trauma, and so on. Through knowledge, self-worth, determination, and unity, Stuart believes our young people of today have the power to push for change within our society and make that change. Stuart was previously a trustee at the Stephen Lawrence Trust, now known as Blueprint for All. And in 2021, Stuart project managed Stephen Lawrence Day at the Stephen Lawrence Day Foundation, which was set up in 2020 by his mother, Baroness Lawrence, OBE. In April 2021, Stuart published his first book, Silence is Not an Option. And his second book, Growing Up Black in Britain, was recently released in September of last year. He is also working with organizations and broadcasters to help them focus on areas of racism internally and externally within our society. Stuart received the prestigious Special Recognition Award by the Multicultural Business and Community Champion Awards to recognize and celebrate his work in the field of equality, his book, Silence is Not an Option, and all the important work he does with the Stephen Lawrence Day Foundation. In 2023, Stuart was awarded an honorary doctorate by Greenwich University for his efforts over recent times. Stuart, welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And hello, everyone. And uh, looking forward to this. Excellent. Well, let me start then, because obviously the death of your brother, Stephen, has been in the media and the news for over 30 years now. Yeah. Tell me, how did his murder affect you and your family? I'd say it was the the reason why I'm here now. That's what it is. We was just a normal box stand family living in a council house in South East London, just trying to get through life and, and to be good people and do good things. And it was one of those things that, as I said, it's catapulted me into a different world that I, I never would have been in. And I'm now 30 years on trying to, you know, use the experience I've had and the things that I've been through to try and make sure that anyone else going through or anyone else that has to go through can actually be able to start to see and understand the other side of it all because Mm. life continues you have to continue you have to go on and 
you have to find ways and means of going on and, and making some sort of sense of what the world has thrown at you, really. But at that particular time, and particularly with the press involved and everything around the way the police handled the situation, what was it really like for you? As you said, you know, an ordinary family trying to get through life, but all of a sudden you're in the public eye. This is big news, you know, on every channel, etc., which really kind of rocked the nation and particularly the black community. But obviously the spotlight was on the Lawrence family. What was that like for you? I'll share this with you. So the very first, the next morning, I had decided I was going to go to school because I thought by going to school, someone in my school would know what happens. Like it's a very small community. It's uh, Woolwich is and South East London. And, you know, I tell people all the time, you asked uh, another young person two questions. What clubs do you do outside of school? Or what school do you go to? And you'd know someone straight away. Mm. Like, oh, yeah, I know that person. And that, that's how close it was. So I was like, right, I'm going to school because someone in my school would know what's happened. And then that morning, there was a knock at my door and I thought it was my neighbour, Stephen Randall, asking if I was going to school and like how I was and everything. So I opened the door and it was a reporter. And he was like, so, oh, you must be the brother. So, you know, what's going on? How do you feel? And I was just like, what the hell? I felt myself like rolling my fist up and just like, absolutely, just about to go through. And then my dad grabbed me from behind and pulled me away and um, told the guy where to go and shut the door. And, and it was just from that point, really, I started to realize that this wasn't just something that happened to my family. It was going to be like a, an insular mm. thing. It was, you know, that, that by the time I came home that evening, my house was full of people. Like, and it was just from that point onwards, it's just been understanding that this hasn't just affected it has affected my family my immediate family my my, my, mm. my next layer of my family as well but like you said it affected the black community it affected people in southeast london it affected people in london and that's that ripple effect that kept on reverberating until yeah sort of like around the world now there's people around the world that know yeah. about my brother's story and the impact that it had and the injustice that it had into it all and i mean that's the bit that i that people that shock people the most especially young people when I tell them I went to school the next day. You know, I had mm -hmm. a list of six names. We gave that to the police. Other people were saying the same thing and nothing happened. Nothing. Like, that's the bit for me in all this story that people find it really hard to get their heads around. Like, what do you mean? You knew who it was and the police knew who it was and nothing happened. Like, that doesn't happen, sort of thing. Yeah. But it does. It, and it yeah. did. And um, yeah, as I said, we never went out to try to be known around the world or around this country for something that wasn't our mission our mission was to try to get the perpetrators who killed Stephen to, brought to justice and see them you know serve their time and do their, their penance and then for us to be able to continue our lives but yeah. it never happened like that Tommy what was your relationship like with with Stephen as, as two brothers growing up you know yeah, was, what was that like it was amazing like I said I, I shared a bedroom with Stephen from the age of five um, he was two and a half years older than me, so he was, he was quite close. Uh, so we'd be in the same school at the same time. So obviously, you know, his, all his friends were, oh, that's Stephen's little brother, Stuart. So that gives you some sort of kudos amongst your year group as well. So life at school was easy. I tell people time, like, I, I had an easy life at school. Like, no one really <laughs> troubled me or, you know, and, and as soon as I said, oh, I'm going to get my big brother, Stephen, it was like, oh, my God, not Stephen. Like, like so... Yeah. I, I, I used that and I lauded that and, and that was why, you know, my first year at secondary school, tell people to, I had the easiest time. Like I, mm -hmm. I knew someone in year nine and year nine, 10 and 11, all those kids knew who I was. And then the ones below that knew who I was as well. So I just walked around school. Like it was, it was like, it was the first day of school was easy. Like <laughs> I knew people, they knew me is, yeah. so I, I never had no fear factor, which again, I do believe that at some point you need a little bit of that because that keeps you grounded and keeps you real. And then I, I started behaving and acting up in my first year of year seven. So I used to go out at lunchtime for, for lunch with the mm. year 11 in year seven. And the teacher was like, you're not allowed to go out. I was like, what do you mean I'm allowed to go out? Like, they're not going out. They, they know who I am. I'm rolling with them. Like, <laughs> So I, it really didn't help me understand and be a young person. And, you know, we got to the stage where I almost got kicked out of my first secondary school and, my parents then moved me to the school that was just up the top of the road, which is an all boys school. And like part of after that, life was life was good because I, I just went to school with my head down. And again, because Stephen was so academic and so good at everything, 
I, I just had to work hard. Like that was my mantra. Like I'm not as clever as him. I'm not. I knew I wasn't. I just had to work hard at everything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and and that's what I did. And then yeah, as I said, he he finished school, uh, was doing his A levels, and I was navigating through doing my GCSEs. And yeah, he, he passed away. And then that just again, I say people time. I, I was supposed to be a, an ordinary bod that you just see on the street. You go, oh, that's just that's just Stuart down the road. He he he's a good guy. Like he works hard. He's got a little family. Yeah. That's just Stuart. That's all I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be. Yeah. Person. And I've developed and turned into now. Well, tell me, you also, you went into teaching. What made you actually go into to teaching? And, and I tell people all the time, like, I wish and hoped everyone, everyone has a role to, to give back. And I think that's what teaching does. So teaching, coaching, mentorship, coaching, leadership, all those things are, is about giving back. And I was at a cross-junction of my life where... I was working at the home, home office. I was supposed to be like a private secretary to a minister. That was my pathway that were, people were etching out for me because, again, these people have power and influence. And I worked at the home office from the second year of university. Yeah, so I was there. And then 9-11 happened while I was working at the home office. And I, I, I was watching the TV when the second plane went into the building. No, sorry, I was, no, I was watching the first plane when the first plane went into the building. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was there. I, that just was like, what? And then... Work just became mad. We went from being on black security, which means you just walk in, high five the security guards and go about your business, to red, to red, where it means you go in, jacket comes off, belt comes off, shoe comes off, pat down to just to get yeah. into work every day. And I was just like, man, this is this is a lot. I, I didn't sign up to this. And then I stopped working there for about three months. I accumulated enough money to take three months. And uh, I, you know, didn't have to go back. And then I met my head teacher of my school that I worked at, uh, Mrs. Morrison. She's like, oh, this was like, this was like early 2000s. She's like, oh, Stuart, I, I know you've done a graphics degree and the girls keep talking to me about this graphic design thing that they want to do and computers and everything. And is this something that you're, you, you could do? And I was just like, yeah, I, I, that's what I did at the university. And she's like, well, have you thought about ever coming into teaching? And before that point, everyone, as far back as I can remember at school, we kept saying, oh, Stuart, you know what? You'd be such a great teacher. The way you explain things, the way you are with other young, other young people, you'd be a great teacher. Be a, I used to think to myself, man, I ain't going to be no teacher, man. That's, that's a dead <laughs> job. Like, it wants to be like you guys where you, no one respects you. And at that point when she said it to me, I was like, you know what? Why not just give it a go? Like, how bad, how hard can this be going to go teach all girls? Like, how hard can this be? Like, this ain't going to, this is going to be a walk in the park. The first year I had to do, I didn't have my GCSE maths after like after losing Stephen. I only had two C's in English. Every rest of my GCSEs I flunked, and I and I decided to go B Tech route once I um finished that. So I never had my GCSE maths, and I you need GCSE maths in English to do mm-hmm. to be a teacher. So the first year I redid my maths, and I was a technician at the school, and just to see the way that these adults were interacting with these young people and the help and support that they were giving. And then, like, to see them then leave and then be so happy about the journey they've been on. I just thought, wow, this is going to be a great thing. And the first two years, it was lightning, bridgestone, fire. <laughs> but in that, it molded me into, into mm. a teacher that I became after that. And I tell people time, like, I still haven't had another job where I could say that job, this job is like, because it's every, no two days are the same, even yeah. though you are teaching the same subject to the same group of students every no two days are the same kids are the one of the best things to uh, people to work with they keep you so real grounded mm. on the finger of the pulse of what's happening the mood of the temperature of how things are for them and yeah i, I spent 15 years at, at my school in st martin's um teaching graphic products i started a gcse course started an a-level course saw kids go to university graduate from university start their own practices so I'll tell people time, like there's nothing better as a feeling to know that something that you're so passionate about, art, design, creativity, yeah. to be able to pass that on to another young person and them get infused about it and then them see them sort of rocket off into space and stars with it all. There's no better feeling than that. There isn't. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yet to say to someone, I find someone to tell me or show me a better feeling of helping someone else reach their potential. So That's yeah, it's, 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 it's been the best and, and as I said, now it's compatible with me into the things I do now. And it just makes everything else I do now so much more easier because, like I said, I can, I can 
go into a classroom with 30, 11-year-olds and command respect and impart knowledge. Tell me then, obviously from there, tell me what inspired you to become an advocate for, for social justice and how did that journey actually begin? So that I definitely would say, so, you know, I've been speaking publicly now from the age of about 22, 23. I think that's the first time I stood up in St. Martin's Church and spoke at my brother's memorial service. And the constructs of being able to convey a message to someone, you know, I think Steve Jobs said it first, the, the world is full of storytellers, but the best storytellers are the ones that are in positions of powers because if you can't tell a good story to someone then you can't convince them to come on your journey with you and that's what that taught me and then then me looking around and seeing you know, we've just been talking about age and time you know that that's my one finite thing that i've now realized is the most precious thing in the world like money is great we all need it but time dictating your own time having your own time to go and do and see and, and, and that's the most precious thing for me and as time is evolving, as I'm getting older, and again, we've come to time as a realization that we're not going to be here forever. Mm. You know, it's, 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 not, it's a bit morbid to talk about, a bit sad to talk about, but we're not. And, and, but in that, the realization, you then realize that if time and you're not going to be here forever, what are you going to do? Because again, all those people were there to help us as a family remember Stephen. And we're talking thousands of people however much time after he was no longer here, still want mm -hmm. to come and remember. And, and that's the key to things, isn't it? Everyone says like, it's, it's the most important factor of life is how many people turn up to your funeral yeah. and want to pay homage to you and, and pay reverence to, to the impact you've had in your life. And that's what I then realized, that there were so many people that have helped us as a family to do that. And, and then some, some of that is, is about giving back as well mm -hmm. like, and saying thank you and, 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 and also using what I have this small platform to advocate and help for others because again without other people helping us as a family standing with us pushing us forwards some of the things that we've been able to accomplish we would have been able to accomplish because it would just have been a, a silent voice in a big cave just echoing with no feedback mm -hmm. you know so I'm, I'm i'm very mindful of all the hundreds of thousands of people up and down this country who've sent messages came into protest, wrote letters, all to support us as a family. So if I can do a little bit to help someone else, then Great. I just see it as my, my journey, a part of my service now to, to help those that, that need help and to be the voice for the voiceless. That's what Good. I now try to do. And where are you on that journey now? Where, what, what stage have you got to? Yeah, so we are. So I said 2018 really sort of started with the announcement of Steve Lawrence Day. You know, that gave me some sort of presence of that we could maybe go a bit further. Because again, on the realization, I was seeing 150 girls come into my school, 150 girls leave every year. Like, I ask myself that question Is that really impact? Are you really making change? Are you really helping and influencing others by doing that? 150 girls every year. And I, and I started to realize that maybe not, maybe there was more that I could be doing. Maybe I was limitating myself of just being in this comfortable bubble because it became a comfortable bubble after a while being a teacher, you know, the kudos that you have and the respect that you get after being somewhere for 15 years, ringed through doorways and classrooms. Like I did, all I would have to do was say, Mr. Lawrence is coming and everyone would be like, oh my God, you've got a Like, so it was easy. It started to become very easy. And again, in that easiness becomes complacency. And, and that's something that I've also looked back over and said, ask myself that question, which is, you know, have I been the best teacher? I do a talk now called the world's best teacher. And I talk about myself as a reference because if someone asks me, Stuart, are you a good teacher? I'm like, oh my God, what do you mean? Best teacher. Like, like I've got the, like, and I would give myself that accolade. But again, mm -hmm. in reflection, and this is why critical thinking and time again is important you then start to realize it's not it's not your aspect or your viewpoint i told my my first head of department this uh yesterday in fact because she was questioning about her leadership and stuff. So i was like you were the best you were the best let me tell you that you're the best it's not for mm -hmm. you to question or to say whether you're the best it's for me as a recipient of your service to me to say whether you was good or not and you was the best now i look back on all the other leaders i had all the other people that influenced me, my teaching career, you was the best. And it's for me as, as your tutor, as your student to say to you, you was the best. 
So don't ever feel or like or wonder or question the things that you now know you wish you knew like 15, 20 years mm. ago to make you, because it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. No. That's what life, hindsight. If I could teach hindsight, I'd be a billionaire right now. I'd be sitting back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to move. But we can't. Hindsight's one of those things that it happens to all of us on the spectrum of life, doesn't matter what point or you know, how old or how young, young you, how young you are. There's always certain points that you go, well, yeah, if I just had that bit of information about that, that would shorten the journey. No, it wouldn't have done because mm. the journey would be different. And, and that's what yeah. people need to realize about that. So, uh, yeah, as I say, I, I definitely would say that 2018, Stephen Lawrence Day helped push the journey. But again, that was hard, stepping out. And, and like I said, I, I've said this now to a few people, and no one will ever captain my ship again for life. Like, I am now the ultimate captain of my ship. So I stopped myself or enabled myself to proceed and make my way in life. No one else is that barrier. I am that barrier or I am an, an advocate. Once you start to realize that, that's a powerful place to be and a space to, to resonate in. And, and again, that's what I'm trying to do, to trying to unlock everyone's potential to understand that. No one, I'm not the truth or say-sayer when on this. We are all holding or withholding or, or, or pushing ourselves into true potential or lack of that potential. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's in that realization of that factor of every day going, okay, cool, so I can and in that, you then become, like I said, the best person you could possibly be. In, and that's what I want everyone to do. Now, you were saying that your journey was 10-year journey. So it started in 2018. If you move forward, what does that look like? I don't know. As I said, <laughs> I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm, and again, there, there's some sort of excitement and, 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 and satisfaction of that saying, I don't know. I've just met a gentleman recently. He's uh, he written a book called The Art of Not Knowing. And 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 it's and it's not a naivety of saying that. It's just saying, I don't know. Like we don't have a magic ball, we don't have magic crystals. Like I I, I well I don't anyway. You know. But what I can do is I can orchestrate, I can put measures in place, I can think about things, I can write things down, so I can talk to other people. And in some of those things, I can maybe accomplish some of those things. So I'm looking up my wall now. I have a wall and I have some stickers and some post-it notes of things I'm trying to achieve for the year. And then I have overall trying to things to achieve. And mm. I'm proud to say off that wall chart now, I've got to change it. But I've accomplished a lot of those things. And I tell kids all the time, that's not just me blowing smoke at something. I'm just saying, I thought, I dreamt it. I thought about it. I wrote it down. I spoke to people. I'll share this with you. So I, I was in Malaysia. I was in Kuala Lumpur, in fact. It was Kuala mm. Lumpur, I was here. It was Malaysia. And um, I'd just come back. I was just from there in the no, end of November, you know, blessed because, again, that came out of someone I used to teach with at St. Martin's, saw oh, a wow. social media post that I did about the kids who things for school. She's like, oh, Stuart, you need to come out to Kuala Lumpur, man. These kids would love what you're doing out here. Nine months later, I'm sitting in her school talking to her students about that experience. Wow, now, that's amazing. That's the thought process of me going, oh, do you know what? I want to do an international talk. Like, I'm doing all these talks in this country. I need to bust this bubble and come out of this country and go. And I thought the first place I'd honestly go to would be America. And it wasn't. It was Switzerland was the first place in Europe. Now, outside of Europe, I've gone to Kuala Lumpur. So we're, we're sitting there having this conversation. And I'm saying to these kids, like, all I've done is said, oh, man, I had a, a thought. Oh, man, wouldn't it be amazing for me to go and teach or talk? internationally then what i did is i wrote that down then what i did was that i just kept on talking to people about it, saying man i want to go to talking internationally wouldn't that be amazing someone's like oh man i've got a link out there let me see if i can cook you up all right cool so so many other people i know is trying to hook this up never happened like but it manifests itself somewhere else yeah like i didn't even realize so i'm there having this conversation talking to these kids about this and then i realized like wow like that's how it all works this is how it all works. Like, you, you have to write things down. You have to talk to, because you don't know who you're talking about. Anyway, yeah. I was talking to um, these guy kids um, about how I want to do a stand-up comedy routine. So I was thinking, Joe, I said, oh, I've judged in this conversation with people, oh, Joe, I, I really want to go to Edinburgh Fringe Festival and, and try my luck up there. I think that's the best place for me to start rather than trying to do anything. Anyway, in saying that, this lady's like, oh, Joe, my sister's COO of Edinburgh Fringe Festival, she is. So I was like, oh, wow. She's like, yeah, I'll introduce you two guys and we'll see what happens from there. Now, if I hadn't said in that yeah. space to someone, in a passing conversation, 
oh man, I think I'm, I'm going to do a stand up comedy routine, man. I really want to, I really like telling jokes. I feel like I'm a funny guy. Now, if I hadn't said that in that space and kept it to myself as, oh man, I really want to do this thing, but I better not tell no one because someone else might steal my idea or someone else might do it before me, then that conversation would never have happened. That link would never have happened. Yeah. And the possibilities of going there is now made, been made a lot more easier because of a connection mm. between two people that I had. Yeah. This is the power of networking. I haven't done nothing other than yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah. I just spoke and, and, and was honest and real. And, and that's what my, my cousins told me. Um, lots of people don't know that my cousin's big nasty. And, and I tell people all the time he's one of my biggest inspirations and mm. role models. Even though he's my younger cousin, even though there were times when he was coming up, I would be disciplining him and showing him the way. Now that we've reached adult state, he teaches me stuff wow. and talks to me about stuff that I've got no ideas about. And that was one of the pieces of advice that he shared with me from my first stylist when I finished teaching him. He said, Stuart, never pretend to be no one else other than yourself. Mm. don't put no act on don't try to be something that you're not because what will happen is one day you won't have that act on and the person that you need to make a connection to will be there and be like man that piece is fake man i don't like don't work with him like <laughs> so if you're always real yeah. in yourself yeah. people either love you hate i tell people all the time i'm marmite i am there are some people that absolutely think i'm the best thing like since sliced bread there is but also on the other factor there are some people that absolutely don't like me that's mm. cool. I understand that. Take a ticket, join the line, yeah? I'm talking to the people that like me, that want me to be around them. That's who my audience is. That's who I'm yeah. focusing on. And, and, and that, for me, is important for everyone to know and understand. Like, it's, yeah, that's yeah. just the way crook cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah, that'll always be the way. You'll always have people that don't like you for whatever reason, maybe jealous, like, who knows? But there are people who will advocate and support you. And this is, this is all the power of networking, you know, all around, which is, which is great. Great revelation. I didn't realize that Big Nasty was your cousin. So that's, um, that's amazing to hear. The other thing I'd like to touch on is you're also an author. You know, you've, you've now written two books. Silence is Not an Option, I think was your first. And then you've written Growing Up Black in Britain. Tell us a bit about that. What correct, inspired yeah. you to write? Yeah. And, and writing's a really weird one. So, so my journey for books, as you can see, my, my bookcase is mad mm. crazy behind me. I, I love books. I've always me loved too. books. Yeah. You know, here is a child who used to read seven books per week easily. Right. Not a problem. Like, I, just, I just love the process of it all, of you're, you're, you're reading people's words and you have to create in your own imagination of what it looks like. That's a powerful, for me to do that. And that's why so many people have so much arguments about, oh, Harry Potter weren't supposed to look like that. Like, come on, he won't look. Because in your mind, when you first read that book, you pictured what Harry Potter looked like. And that was bespoke for you. And that's the beauty of reading books. And I never thought I'd write a book. I'll be honest. I found out I was dyslexic when I was about 22 mm. at university. So writing has always been a super challenge for me. I always felt like when I'm writing, how quick I talk in my head, how quick I process, my hand was never able to keep up. Never. I was just like, so therefore, I'm writing stuff. And then when someone's reading, I'm thinking, like, there's words missing, Stuart. What's, what's going on? And that's because it's, my hand just couldn't keep up. Now, I wrote my first book by speaking into my phone. Wow. And that's what I tell kids all the time. Like, you, you, my dyslexia, my disability, my, my kryptonite is a blank piece of paper, pen in hand, write something, Stuart. That's my kryptonite. Mm. My superpower is... Put me in front of a crowd of people and say, you need to convey this message to them and let them know something, Stuart. Cool, got it done, not a problem. Tell a story, wrap it around something, deliver a message. Boom, that's me. So I just used, I turned the table. I just I spoke into my phone and that's what I go around and tell kids now. Like, everyone's got one book inside them. I totally believe mm. that. Everyone's got one book. Everyone's been on their own personal journey, been through stuff, had to get through stuff, was successful with things, weren't so successful. That story, that journey, there may be a couple of people that want to read that. Mm. It may help a couple of people along their way to see what you did and how you to navigate. And, and it could be acted act like a bit of cheat code. That's my first book. I tell people all the time, Silence is Not an Option is the cheat code for how to be successful at school and for life. Mm -hmm. That's what I've done. I've just concentrated it down, seen the bits that worked, formulated. So my 20 years experience percolated 138 pages. There you go. Crack on. See what you can do with it. 
because mm. it's hard work, dedication, or focus. That, that's all it is. But it just gives you a few little pointers of how to get there around those things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and growing up black in Britain was was a, came out of a school visit that I did to Mansfield, where I met this young lady who'd been living in England for three years. Her first year, she lived in Croydon, loved it. You know, got on. Lots of people that looked like yeah. her. Lots of people she could hear her own language. You know, lots of places to get hair done. Lots of places you could get food and stuff. Felt like at home. And then she got moved to Mansfield. One of two black girls in our whole year group. Nowhere to get her hair done. Yeah. Nowhere to get the source local food from. She just felt like she was an alien. And I was saying to her, and in that conversation, I realized that London is a bubble. Like the multiculturalism, how we all rub together, how we all get on is a bubble. And that bubble isn't the same when you leave London. There, there will be, if you're, if you're not white of skin color, then once you leave London, there may be a few other places around this country where people will look at you like, who's that? <laughs> And give you that kind of reaction. Now they're not being p- specifically rude or aggressive because it's because it's just like wow, like they don't get to see what you used to see, get to see in Croydon or Streatham or you know Battersea or wherever those ends that you're coming from, where you know the multicultural culturalism life is just there. We just get on like it's not surprising to see a black guy or an Indian guy or a mm. Chinese guy or a white. It's not surprising to see Orthodox Jews. Like it's it's not all those little things because. You grow up in the middle of, oh, that's just a bit of London. That's... Whereas other people in their areas, the percentages of diversity is, is minute. So therefore, when you go to those areas, they're like, Jesus Christ, like, who's that? Like, no, see, that's just life. Yeah. So, and I, what I want you to do is give young people who are in those little pockets of spaces just to know and understand that it's fine. You, you can go find your tribe as you get older. There will mm. be points in time where you just say this isn't for me no more i'm not residing here like there must be other people who like skateboarding or rock music or drum and bass whatever it may be you at a certain age you'll be able to go and find your tribe and go and be around your people let me ask you a question about growing up black in britain do you think today that growing up black in britain is easier or harder than it was when you were growing up and when I was growing up in, in this country? Yeah, I, I think it's ever getting easier. I do, because of the conversations and topics have moved on. I can tell people times. So when my dad came at 18, he saw signs that said, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, mm. in windows when he's looking for accommodation. The, the racism isn't so overt like that anymore. We are moving into microaggressions and microisms of people's behaviours that we then have to go, is that? You know, I, I'll share with this. So, so there's been two incidences where I've been treated differently in a shop than I believe I should have been. And the last time was in Brixton, Marks and Spencer's. So I've gone into Brixton's Marks and Spencer's. I bought something. I've gone to the checkout and there's a young black guy on the checkout. So I've gone, Joe, well, let me buy my stuff with Donnie rather than using the electronic machines. Had a wicked conversation. Guy was on like, university, doing his thing. I was like, yeah, brother, man, you do your thing, like a little part-time job. Love that. Mm. Keep it going. Da, 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 da. Anyway. About to walk, walk out. And then I, I looked as I was walking out. Marks and Spencer's decided that they were now doing jerk chicken, like pre-packed stuff. What? what? Is Marks and Spencer's down on a little jerk chicken, yeah? So I was like, do you know what? Let me see what this is about. So I really bought my stuff. And again, just as a side caveat, I, I'm, I'm the guy that forgets to bring the shopping bag, that, but refuses to buy another one because I'm trying to do my bit for the environment. So it's called the, 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 the challenge to, to see if you can get the, the stuff back to the car without dropping anything. So I'm that guy. So things are in my pockets. You know, I've, I've, you know so, you know, I'm there. So finally goes, oh, I'm going to check. So I've gone back. And I've gone, Joe, well, I'm just going to use the checkout this time. I don't need to line up and speak to Donnie again. So I've just lined up, paid for the stuff. There was an Indian guy that was at the, 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 the self-checkout bit, just watching people. So I've gone up to the self-checkout with all this stuff in my pocket and I've paid for one thing and I've walked out. Anyway, didn't think nothing of it. I've got to the... To, in Brixton, the food bit's at one end, the door's at mm. the other end. So I'm going out to walk out. The security guy's gone, oh, excuse me, sir. We don't think you're, you're the, the guy's radioed through and said he doesn't think that your purchase has gone through. So I go, what? Pulled my phone out, bruv. Apple Pay. One purchase there, second purchase there. Pay for my stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you may, but I don't, he, he wants you to go back. So I'm like, hold on a minute. So the guy saw me. At the thing, pay for one thing with things in my pocket, 
didn't have the gumption to say to me, oh, sir, have you previously paid for that stuff there? <laughs> and asked me then, he waited for me to come out the shop for you, Mr. Security Guard. Brother, I lost it. I lost it. Yeah. I absolutely lost it. And I was like, do you know what? Today's not the day. And, and I started, I raised my voice. Nah, like you guys, this, 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 like, da, da, da. And then around the corner, one of my old uh, work colleagues comes. She goes, oh, Stuart, what are you doing here? She goes, go, Stuart, leave it, leave it, leave it. Come and come. And she walked me out of the shop. And I was like, why did you? She's like, oh, Stuart, I know what you're like. And I just could hear this voice. And I was like, I know that voice from somewhere. I know that and I turned around the corner, it was you. So anyway, so she walked me out. But I was, I was like, do you know what? I'm just fed up of people not doing their job. Like, mm-hmm. if, if he wanted to question me, then question me. I wouldn't have, I haven't done nothing wrong. So you wouldn't have got the, oh my goodness, what you, you would have just got, brother, pay for it. Here you go. Look, the receipt, ask the guy the cashier sort of thing. But you were, you, you're too afraid because of what? Because of who I am or what I look like. Mm-hmm. So you leave it to the security guard. Nah, bro, that was, and as I said, it's, so it's those little bits of, isms now that i'm finding rather than people speaking and having communication assumptions are made you know and as we know the word assumption means you're making an ass out of you and me and i'm mm. not i'm not to be made an ass out of as far yeah. as i'm concerned yeah because I, i'm not that guy I, I, i'm if, if i'm gonna do that trust me if i'm gonna try and steal something from the shop you will never know i'm that like but i'm not that guy i'm, I'm a big man like i know i'll dress around my hoodies and i may look may look young and off the road but I'm not. Speak to me. Mm. Have a conversation, and, and then that that you'd know. And that's the bit that upsets me with people as well. Because again, people just assume things, make judgments, you know, without even me uttering a word or speaking. And I think that mm. for me is, is the the place that I, I really dislike and feel like we are in now, where people are making assumptions of things on both sides of the argument as well. I definitely would say that. Yeah, yeah. This is this is you know the stereotyping which still exists which means that you know we still do have systemic racism in the uk tell me what do you think needs to be done i mean a lot of work has been done right addressing racism and thanks to to the work your family have done but tell me what do you think still needs to be done to to address systemic racism in the uk i don't think it ever will be because it's based on capitalism that this is the bit that people don't seem to understand or Mm. it's, it's, it's structures these are structures mm. about power. power and money. Mm. So uh, until you pull those structures down or want to talk about them in a different guise of form, then they're always going to be there circumvently. You know, I've just come from Malaysia. In Malaysia, they've had 25, nearly 30 years of prosperity and wealth. So now the Malay Malay people are seen as top. Malay Chinese are seen as second. And Malay Indians are seen as third. Malay Malay people don't want to be part of servitude no more they don't want to be servants they don't want to be cleaners so therefore who are they the next rung down has to be mm. now the Ch- malay chinese have got certain status now they don't want to be anymore so who comes in the malay indians well, on, my, on my play there must be about 30 indian gentlemen from india coming to work for six or seven weeks and then they go back mm. so until until you talk about fundamental structures of those that have, those that don't, this will always compete here in some sort of guise. Mm. Why do we have the problems we have in Jamaica of our politicians that look a certain skin tone? Mm. Again, so this, these, these are constructs that we don't really want to talk about. I've, I found out this the other day, someone said this, that we all, we all have a story and narrative of how we've got here to this point now that we're talking. We've all told ourselves a story to get ourselves to this point. And on, yeah. in that story, there are certain stories that are lies that we've told ourselves to convince ourselves that we're good people. And until you go back and look at those lies and have an honest conversation with yourself, this will always constitute to be something. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and no, I agree. That's why now on, oh, no, but again, I'm talking to you as, as I resolute and come to this factory map, because mm. when I first started this journey, I was on a call, professor Gus John, and I was being like, oh, yes. And, you know, in another 10, 15 years, when my son comes to some sort of age, this thing called racism will be disappeared. And he looked at me and went, it will never go. And I thought to myself, oh, come on, Gus, man. You've been in the game too long now. Like, you've just been jaded. Now I see what you're saying. Yeah. Now yeah. I see what you're saying. There in is some a... sort of construct, this will still always be. Yeah, there's a status quo that's in place, driven by privilege and power. Right, and those people who are in those positions. There's no reason for them to want to to drive change. It's the people who who don't have 
are the ones who are protesting to try and make a change in this world. And you'll always have that that battle going on, you know. So it's interesting. It's almost just so we're in that's there. why the saying power will never be given, it will always be taken. Taken. Mm-hmm. That's why me, I love Tony Ben. Tony Ben, his list of power constructs, questions to ask yourself. Who the last question is who's in charge and how do we get rid of them? Yeah. Because yeah, again, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, because I do, do believe that in leadership, there are good examples of leadership as well. Of, of you know, I think I particularly like Obama's way of leadership and his tenure that he did as president. Because again, that's what it is. But we are all trying to vibe to be the best. Let's not get that messed up. Like, if you're not trying to be the best, then I question who you are as a person. And, and maybe you don't need to be in my circle because, again, I have a thirst and drive to be the best. Whatever I do, I have the thirst and drive to be the best. That's been instilled with my, by my mum and my parents. Mm. I try to instill that into my own son. But the mantra is hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Bro, but you've got to work hard at it. It's not just getting there and, oh, I'm an academy player. That means nothing. Yeah. It's the longest job interview you're going to have in your life. If you really want it, you've got to work hard. I can only infrastructure, con- take you to the matches, buy you the football boots, Make sure the meals are great, you know, get you there on time. I can do that bit. That's all I can do. The rest of it's on you. I can't. As much as I want it for you, as much as I win it for you, can't. You've got to do the work. Yeah. So striving to be the best is something that, but again, once you get there, what are you going to do? How are you going to be different? Mm. How are you going to help others that want to be there in your place one day? Because again, it's a finite of time. Football's yeah. life is span is only a certain amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. Like with anything, I do believe nothing's forever. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, listen, we're we're coming closely to the end of the show. I have a couple more questions. So, tell me first of all, what advice would you give to young people who do want to make a difference in their communities? Again, it's it's about gathering others with you in anything that you do. You, you can't do it by yourself. Mm. Yeah, there's that thing. If you want to go somewhere fast, go by yourself. But if you want to go somewhere far, go with others. I'm a firm believer of that. Like you have to find a way of conveying that message and that, that thought process to others and helping others to help you on your mission statement of your journey. And that's done by, you know, I, I tell people to all the time, one of the people I speak about to my primary school kids is, is Greta Thunberg. I, I, I think she's an amazing individual. And that's just started off with a young person going, this is wrong. I'm going to protest about this on a Friday. I'm, I'm just going to keep on doing this until someone pays attention. Hmm. Her best friend was the first person that paid attention. She's like, where? Like, every Friday, you're not here, like, for the last three weeks. What's going on? She told her best friend. She's like, oh, come on, good. I'm going to come with you. One became two. Two became four. She goes around the world now. Millions of people. I can put a picture of this young child up with a little yellow um, anorak on and go to pick kids. Who's that? Oh, that's quite a fun burn. It's well, recognized. Yeah. I'm not you know who they, wow i didn't tell you that was that's how power influence works if you could put a picture of someone up and you could go someone else can go yeah i know that person that's power and influence and that's come about of her and her mission statement and her thought process which she started at 16 so if she can start at 16 she's 21 now what can you do mm. how far can you push yourself because again like we said just a minute ago you are only stopped and enabled by yourself you are the person that's either going to enable yourself to be grand don that slays it all, that's amazing, or just that person goes, oh, yeah, he was, he was all, yeah, man, he had something about him, but, you know, he's, I don't know where he is now. Like, we, we both will have friends where you go, oh, I thought he was going to, and that's also what I do. I've got a picture of my, my, year, my year 11 uh, sort of graduation day where I've got my record of achievement, and there's like, 15 of my friends all lined up. And I say to the kids, out of all those 15 kids, you pick out the one that's got him. It's a millionaire. Got his own house, swimming pool in his own yard, like climbed Mount Everest, holidays and goes wherever he wants, beautiful life. Pick, you pick him out. You tell me what you want it is. And the kids go, oh, that one, that one. How are you going to pick it out? How do I, how is I going to know? But he tells me on a daily basis, Stuart, do you know what? He was a decent bloke. He was nice. He was kind, considerate. Someone took the mickey out of one of us. You was the first one to stand up and advocate for someone else. Now, I didn't do that at the age of 12 going, oh, one day, one of these kids are going to be millionaires and oh, that's going to put me in good stead. I didn't do that. I did it because it was the right thing mm-hmm. to do. Like, 
why are you taking me care of someone else for? But yeah, again, absolutely. it's characters, personalities. And it's, 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 it's those things that I tell people time. That's why I always say to my own son, like, just be a good person. Just be nice. Just be mm. polite. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't know when the circle of life will come back round and you'll meet the same person that you've taken the mickey out of being horrible to, and that person can open the door, enable something. That's what I promote and tell the kids now, because you yeah. don't know. You don't. Going back yeah. to my story about the person who nine months ago helped me to go to Kuala Lumpur. If I was a horrible person as an adult, she wouldn't go mm-hmm. on, let me help Stuart and advocate for Stuart and speak for him in, in rooms that he doesn't get to, into. No, she wouldn't have done. Yeah. But she did, and I got to do it. Brilliant. Um, you have done a lot of amazing work. And and if I'm honest, I would say that ar- around the Lawrence family, most of the focus was around your mum and dad and the tireless work that they've done. Very little known about Stuart Lawrence. I think that's changing. Um, I'm pleased to to say the the work you've done is absolutely amazing. Not just in the social justice side of things, but you know, writing books and educating people. Would you say? I'm sure your answer is going to be yes. But would you say that Stephen? looking back would be immensely proud of what you've achieved or would he be selling you there's more that you there's more that you can achieve (laughs) again again this this is this is what i say to my mum like who are the people around you that keep it real with you and say do you know what and 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 i've got a great network of people who Mm. keep me real no more than my own son yeah like and for me once you start believing your own, like what they say, once you start drinking your own Kool-Aid and believing it, yeah, then, then you're in trouble, aren't you? Like, and mm. and that, that's the one thing I'm, I'm very mindful about. I, I never try to get to above my own station. In, in private, in, in, in deep down, there are things that I want to do and I'm trying to do, of course, mm. because again, that's what keeps me driving going forward. But I'm mindful that I'm in a very <laughs> privileged position. I understand and know my privilege and my position of power. Yeah. And, and that's why I say to all the time, like I asked yesterday, so, so how do we address you? Do we, in fact, they said in Kuala Lumpur, they were practicing cur- curtsying and bowing uh, before I came. And I was just like, this is the wrong Don. Like I have no ears and graces about me at all. Mm. I have no pretentiousness about me. Like I don't think I'm better than anyone else. I will go and sit in a canteen in a school and just eat with the kids. Like I don't, I don't need no tables. Mm. Like that's how real. I am or try to be because if I can't, you can't, they can't see and touch and feel and understand the realness of what it is to be a proper, decent, honest, Mm. humble human being. And I put on some sort of, Oh no. Yeah. So no, don't, no, don't, please don't. Then I'm only feeding into the reasons why we were talking about the constructs of problems that we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, I'm replaceable. I know I'm replaceable. I know there will be another one after me that will be able to do even maybe a better job than what I can do on certain things. And while I'm custodial of this, whatever this may be, whatever this may thing may be, I'm just trying to do my best and and to try to, rather than, I like that analogy, there's two analogies that I love. Is one about the ladder, you know, there are people who are putting ladders in places for you to climb up and then showing mm. you pathways and holding down hands and helping people up. But there's also people who have got ladders that then once they get to their next level, they pull their ladders up. Yeah. And they look down and go, oh, why are you not getting up here? Yeah. Why are you finding it so hard? There's that. And there's also Lord of the Rings. Like that, that, the, the analogy of that, which is about power and construct again, and when it gets you how drunk it makes you feel and how – that's another lesson to be learned. Mm. And again, I've, I've learned those lessons. I, this will never, ever get to an echelon where I think I'm better than everyone else or better yeah. than people because I'm not. Uh, and in, in that construct, whatever happened to me as a family, whatever happened to us as a family could happen to you. It could. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I, I wish it wouldn't. I don't hope it doesn't. You know, I, I never want that. But no, it could. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stuart, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. So I want to first thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Um, I'm sure people will find this of huge, huge interest. And you're doing fantastic work, you and all of your family. Um, and I just want to say uh, thank you for the work you've done. I think 
you know, what you have done and what your family have done has actually changed this country. It's changed the way the police operate in the way they work, changed the way the government works. It's changed the way the job situation is with people of color in particular, you know. So that's, you know, thanks to, to you and your family. So I just want to say a big thank you, not just on my behalf, but on, on the black community in, in particular. Because this is, a for me, you know, with what happened to your brother and what's happened since then, this is a piece of black British history that has actually changed how this country looks today. So I wish you every success of whatever you do in your future, particularly on your tenure, the end of your 10-year plan, and then what happens to the next 10 years after that, I'm sure you will be hugely successful. So thank you very much for joining. Appreciate you. I appreciate that. Thank you. No worries. You take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Diversity Matters, the podcast. Remember to go ahead and hit the subscribe button. That was a great discussion with Stuart, and I hope you enjoyed it. Here are my key takeaways. The murder of Stephen Lawrence had a profound effect on Stuart and his family, catapulting them into a new world of social justice and advocacy. The ripple effect of Stephen's murder extended beyond his family and affected the black community and society as a whole. Stuart's close relationship with his brother shaped his own identity and influenced his career choices. The Lawrence family's work has had a significant impact on the country, changing the way institutions operate and improving opportunities for people of colour. Storytelling and personal experiences are powerful techniques that can be used to inspire and educate others. Systemic racism in the UK is still prevalent and requires ongoing efforts to dismantle structures of power and privilege as this perpetuates inequality and competition. Striving to be the best requires hard work and a commitment to continuous improvement. Staying grounded and genuine is important to maintain humility and authenticity. Thank you for listening. to this episode of Diversity Matters. If you liked what you heard, then be sure to hit like and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.